all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, November 29th, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. I'm Guy Eero, and despite the pep in my voice, I'm battling a cold today. And we have a special guest with us today. We've got Raymond Woods, who's the Anupiak Program Coordinator for the Northwest Arctic Borough School District. And we are talking about a really popular fish today, sometimes referred to locally as the mud shark, but it's got a lot of different names depending where you're from. So we're going to dig into that a little bit more. And Raymond, we just wanted to say welcome. I am here talking about mud shark. I think you're the uh, probably the most appropriate person to talk to this, seeing as your uh, culture and language coordinator. I want to know where the term mud shark comes from because we've talked about this fish on this show in one of our first episodes and we referred to it as the burbot then, which is what I'm more familiar with. And so I'm wondering, mud shark, is that like an anglicization of some of the terms used to describe them in the Inupiaq languages? Or is that something that was brought in by the outsiders straight up? It, it, that name just came with the outsiders that came up here. That's not the original name. When outsiders first came out here, like the sheepfish, not knowing the sheepfish, that's another type of fish that migrates up the Cobra River. They call it Inkanook, they call it sheepfish, they call it big mouth fish, whatever that outsiders name it. It's similar to what they're naming the mud shark. They're, they're naming mud shark because it likes to stay, stay on the sandy areas, okay? So it's mud. And it actually looks like a shark. If you were to look at the tail and the fins and stuff like that, and then the form of the fish, it does look like a shark. What's the uh, Nupiak name for that fish? Didalek. Didalek. And is there any way to translate that into to English at all? Does that have any particular meaning? Or is this meaning just one-to-one to this fish? Just um, one-to-one name for it. I can research it more from my elders why it's called that, but then uh, I would have to sit down and talk about it. The Nupiak language is so beautiful. Is there anything you can say in a Nupiak for us, message-wise, for kids out there or people locally about this fish or about the resources you have there? I could introduce myself in any path. Please do. Okay. Ubanga in your path, Sisiga, Kala, Ashin, Kubangbi, in you, in you, Marunga. Mandali in you, Nailak put, Angu Nailak put, Ubanga Savariga, Northwest Kukutni. Okay. Thank you. Can you translate that for us now? Yes. Yes. Um, I was born and raised on Upper Koba. My job for the Northwest School District is hunting and fishing and our, our, keeping our culture alive and our language. Fantastic. Thank you. That was very nice. For folks that haven't seen a mud shark before, could you like v- visually kind of describe them to us? Mud shark is a bottom fish, bottom fish eater, very similar to what they call the bottom fish down low 48. Um, like a catfish? Just like a catfish. They got feelers in front of their head and then the, the body looks like actually it's the same color as a catfish, but the lengths are longer. They eat their own, what what would we call when they eat their own? Cannibalism. Yeah, yes. um, Just (laughs) like the sheep fish, the other fish. So they got a big mouth for that. And 
that's the reason why it's so easy to catch a mud shark when we do ice fishing. We just get a J-hook, put a bait on it, lower it down, and j- just keep jicking it, and then a fish will swim up. What are they doing this time of year? This is a good time of year to fish for them? Yes, um, during late month of uh, October, early month of November, that's when the trap is set. The fish itself migrates up the river after freeze up, just about late October. And in order for for our people to trap them back in the day, they want for a good freeze up, or they'll select their areas right before freeze up where they're going to set the trap. And the trap is set traditionally with just wood, uh, trees, and whatever materials they're going to be using to set the trap. Now, since they know that the fish are going to, will be swimming upriver, they will find an area where it's deep enough where they can set the trap. It's going to be like five to six feet of water. So over time during freeze up, it won't freeze to the bottom of the riverbed and freeze the trap out. They got to make sure they got a current to the shoreline because the mud sharks travel upstream. They need to be traveling upstream. That's where they're migrating up to go um, do their spawning. I would love it if you could talk a little bit more about this trap. You mentioned putting down trees or other debris into the river, but then how do you actually go in and harvest the fish and take them out of the trap? So the materials are gathered right about freeze-up time because the river is frozen. You can go and get your your trees, cut them down from five inch to a nine inch diameter trees, and then split them because you are building like a a fence, like a blockage to block the fish from coming up the stream to get them to trap in your trap house. So after building the um, 30 feet of fence line, you build a housing using the same material, split wood. Traditionally, they make them out of willow, out of alder, like 12 by 12 box. And then you made the entrance. They call it the throat. It's kind of like a funnel that it starts off with a big opening and it gets smaller and smaller as the fish goes in. That, that, that's right, like a funnel. And, and, it, and then once you finish the trap, usually they say that, ah, give it a couple of days, get the fresh wood cut smell away from the, from the trees and all the sap and everything. Now, to protect from freezing, of course, you know, by then it's 20, 30 below. So the water will freeze where inside your housing where you're going to be checking the trap. So they, back in the day, they used to put caribou skin and willows, then caribou skin and kind of insulate it and cover it with snow and kind of insulate that area from freezing out. So you do that. And then next day, after a few days, go check. And then they make big, long gaff hooks. They'll gaff the fish out of there once they're in the trap. And after getting all the fish out of the trap, what they do is they'll get a scraper like a long pole. Cut. The fish been trapped there for, for a while now. All that slimy from their skin, the slime and all that fish, you know, it, it's all there. So what they do, they stir the bottom of the gravel and then put the gravel from the bottom to the edges again to seal up the housing. They, they kind of clean it up for the next fish to come through because yeah. they got to have a fresh current. And that's the way they do it. 
And you've been taking students out, correct, to build some of these? Yes, um, over the last few years, we, for the Upper Cobuck students, we got like about four, um, three villages up there who is traditionally still setting crabs on the Cobuck River. That's cool. And what are the, what are the skills you're hoping that these students are going to gain through doing that? Well, one thing about it is while we're building the trap, we're using our language. The, we're using it as hands-on training, learning a technique that you know, traditionally inherited from our ancestors and using our language. Our ancestors lived here for 5,000 years before the outsiders came in. So somebody's got to know how to catch fish or without, you know, without the rifles or without the nets. Or with, I mean, we just want to keep our tradition alive with, with our young people. So down the road, when they say, what is a mature trap? You know, they... They'll, they'll know. Um, some, you got to be passed on. So. If, if I may ask real quick, what is the most important thing you consider when you're trying to pass on these traditional cultural values in the presence of uh, sort of modern amenities? What, what do you focus on? What, what's the most important things to keep from the traditional point of view and what's okay to kind of bring in some of the more modern stuff? It seems to us like when... An item is used, a tool is used, a new thing is introduced to our traditional tools and stuff like that. It seems to be costing more money. And then you could go back to the traditional ways of doing it with hardly any money, just using the local organic resources. But when they're talking about, oh, let's just bring the auger down and let's just auger it through and then let's just get the chainsaw and then cut the eyes through then and it's a lot easier i mean instead of picking the eyes six to 12 inches of ice with with the ice pick or with the um with axe and shovels and trying to get up it's a lot easier to get that chainsaw and cut six inches of trench line at least i didn't take them out that blocks you know what i mean it's something that in order for us to trap for the machar and our values in what we use it for and how we how we do it. The tools doesn't matter on how how easier it is to set a trap. It's something to maintain the food resources, um, like from the river and keeping the culture alive. Raymond, how long does this take when you take the students out? Like, are you guys camping out there? Like, kind of just what is it like? What's the atmosphere like with their energy? The kids that go out there and do this. It varies because, of course, you have to follow the um, school policy. You can't take kids out when it's 30 below or colder. So you got to be right at the range of like 20s and 25, you know. So once we get out, I have to have a warm-up place for them. And we're just a few minutes away from the school. But these kids, once you start a project, they get so into it. By the time it's like 3.30, 4 o'clock time to get back to school, they want to stay longer. And one thing good about it is having a project like that, traditional project like that for our people, especially to keep our culture alive, is something that unplugging them from technology, from all the iPhones and unplug them from computers and go out there and do a traditional stuff. Our people survive in outdoors, food off the land, and it's 
not something you go to the classroom and get educated and go out and do it. You have to actually have the hands-on instruction to do it. Hmm. Yes, they're very excited when they're out there. Think. That's cool. So. I, I couldn't agree more with you about that hands-on learning aspect. And I'm really glad that there's people out you who are taking the time to go out and do this. I'm also, after having spent a couple of years down in Georgia, where if there's more than a 5% chance of it snowing the next day, they shut down schools. I'm glad to hear that the threshold is, as long as it's above 30 below, we're good to go. <laughs> Raymond, do you have a favorite story from growing up about mud sharks with your own experiences fishing? Um, you know, when I was growing up back in the early 60s, back then transportation was docking. And Saturday morning when my dad is hooking up the dogs, I can hear the whole dark barking and hooking up the dogs to head out. Even before I asked my dad, can I go? I usually um, dress up to go out to the mud shark trap with him and then and just stand by the sled until he said, go ahead, get on, you know? But when I asked him beforehand here, it seemed to be like, uh, you know, I'm going to be carrying a load today, but when I'm ready to go, it's just, you know, that's one thing I used to try to trick my dad, <laughs> but you know, uh, it, it's something that we grew up with, yeah. my age group anyway, and, and trapping. I love trapping. Uh, I love um, any fur trapping, uh, much art trapping and stuff like that. One thing about my funniest story in fish traps, our students really doesn't know why it's the purpose of a funnel for the fish to come up to trap in the housing. So one day, half the kids go down and then check the trap. And instead of being careful, they snack the throat and they kind of break it. Mm-hmm. And... One kid said that, well, at least the hole is bigger now. Like, <laughs> we can trap more fish. <laughs> like, oh, well, no, we can catch all the fish now. The, the, the entrance is a lot bigger. <laughs> we took that, <laughs> whatever Raymond put on there, we took it off. Then we take it off. It's going to work now. I know that these fish have a really important liver that has a lot of vitamin D. Is that something that you train the kids to do as well is like preparing the fish? And if so, what are some of the recipes that you guys use? The story is the outsiders would call it the Arctic lobster. So it is, it, it tastes that good. What are people was really after for that iron? You know, especially for the, from the liver. Okay, my charts is very rare fish because once they're coming up in October and when it gets like December, their livers get larger. So a fish that is like um, maybe two and a half feet long or maybe two feet long, the size of a liver would be this size when they're first coming up, but this size. So like the size of your fist? I don't know how the livers grow. I have no idea, but that's one that, that our people go after the liver and the eggs. And then they'll make their special pot in doing that. And then it's called itupalak in our native language. So they cook the liver and they cook the eggs, they mix it up and they put cranberries in there and they, they stir it up. And then that's something like a delicacy food for, for our culture people. And I would guess the vitamin D is really important kind of leading into the winter months 
where the sun is very low and yeah, so important fish for sure. I'd I'd be curious if the if the fish itself might be storing that up, knowing that the ice over is coming. I question that a lot with my dad about why the liver grow, and then he had no idea either. So it's something we'll keep doing because it's one of our traditional inheritance from our ancestors that. It's still alive here on the Kobuk River, and it's very important to me and myself. I do it for pride and just to keep my culture alive and my language. And to the kids, it's something that they can always do on the Kobuk River if they want to go back to their Inupiaq values. How do Alaska's wild foods and some of the foods locally to the Kobuk area and Kotzebue and just that area of Alaska, how do they compare to some of the other cuisines that you've tried elsewhere along your travels? Um, yes, I I had traveled a lot and I've been to different. I try and taste their local traditional native foods from any other countries or stuff like that. But it seems to me that my taste growing up with what our resources are for food is my taste is always still leaning toward what I grew up with. Sometimes it takes more to get used to like the Cajun food in Louisiana. It it takes more time to get, eat that spicy food in Korea or the food they eat in New Zealand. I can eat seal oil. I can eat frozen raw meat. I can eat frozen fish and uh, my body is all immune to it. Talking about that, my wife's from Texas, and our son will also drink the water off the river. Like people always said, well, don't drink that river water. You you get that. Um, Giardia? Yes. And they're real careful about that, right? And then one time, was, my son was young, and then we just came back from Texas. And then he, <laughs> my wife said, Spencer, you don't drink that water. He said, Mom, I'm an Eskimo. I can drink my water, that water. My dad is Eskimo. He drinks that water. And it's just like, mm-hmm. you just don't, you just don't put that definition into that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and that's what it's all, all about. Do you have a, a message that you would like to give folks, like maybe especially young people about these fish or just anything in general? Yes. One thing that I think we don't talk about enough to our younger people is it's very important to anyone, anyone who walks on earth. It is very important to know your identity, where you came from. It is very important for you to know your language, especially for the Native Americans and or whoever you're from. Know about yourself, know about your your family tree, and and just keep the family tradition alive. And something like this, like a traditional project for the kid to keep it alive is so easy because all the resources are still here. The fish is still swimming up the river, so it's not going to stop. And I would invite you guys to come out here to go help me set these traps. I would love to do that. Maybe that when, COVID's, when COVID is over, I'll be up there. I've been holding off on some travel. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Raymond. This was an amazing conversation with you. And yeah, thank you for sharing your stories and your language and that trapping technique. That's a a very good thing to continue. So kudos to you for continuing that with the, the kids.
Okay, we hope everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish, including the burbots or mud shark or cusk. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montaguin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.